Thank you, Caleb. Praise the Lord for all those hours at the piano and mom and dad's money spent and uh, the blessings paying off to many of us. We're very thankful. And Caleb is a multifaceted person. His parents are training him hand, head, and heart. And when he's not on the piano, sometimes he's holding a, a MIG welder or a TIG welder. He's very good at it. This is our goal, to make our young people the most well-rounded, well-developed, gracious, beautiful people on the face of the planet. Let's pray. Lord, we are in your house, blessed by the glorious opportunity to pray and praise and to be lifted up in music. And we're praying now, Lord, that our hearts would be humble before you, that you'd hear us and bless us in the word, and that we would know how to walk in that happy path because we walk with you inside the precepts and the principles on the highway of holiness. Guide us now, I pray. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, balance matters. Some of you have uh, driven cars where the tires get old and the weights fall off and pretty soon you're driving down the road and you get to a certain place and the steering wheel's doing this. If you've never driven an old junky car like that, I feel sorry for you because it's a life education about how to appreciate one that doesn't do that. And sometimes your wheels are out of line and you're driving down the road and the car is always trying to pull you off. At West Salem Camp Meeting last weekend, I had somebody give me a new quote, which I'd like to give to you. He said, for every 10 miles of road, there's 20 miles of ditch. And I want you to think about that. Because the devil wants us in one of those ditches. And, you know, if you've... I mean, probably the most dramatic thing that happened to me with balance is I was flying on a, an airplane a big 737, and all of a sudden the plane shuddered and a little smoke came through the cabin and the attendant's looking out the window and we're all wondering what she's looking at. She goes and talks on the phone and we don't wonder who she's talking to because she's talking to the captain. And pretty soon she tells us that an engine went out. And there's a few people in this uh, room that fly airplanes and a few that have flown big airplanes. And I want to tell you, when you have two engines and one goes out, you can still fly the airplane, but it doesn't fly the same way. And this morning, I want to talk to you about balance, balance. Because when things get out of balance, we have a problem. The Bible says in John 1:14 that Jesus came full of what? Anybody know? Grace and truth. It doesn't say he came full of truth and grace. It matters because there were some things out of whack in the days of Jesus. They were imbalanced. I watched a video by one of our former pastors, uh, Pastor Joe Reeves. It's entitled, Religious Tyranny Rising. And this morning, I want to encourage all of you, if you have some time this afternoon or in your week, watch this video. It's a very good sermon, and it's a very disturbing message that affirms prophetic truth. And the disturbing part of the message is what we're watching in, in Protestant America right now with kind of these uh, religious nationalistic meetings and the pledges people are taking. I think what we're watching is an extreme reaction to a society that has no anchor point in morality. So I've entitled this message Affirmation Theology, the Cross and the Judgment. And I, I wanna do a few things that I hope get you to thinking give you wisdom and understanding about how to live your life and how to deal with the people that are in your realm of influence. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of John. 
The Gospel of John, chapter 8. By the way, I want to say how much I appreciated our early teens this morning leading out in our song service. And uh, Nicanor playing his grandpa's accordion, 75 years old it is. And that was a really beautiful thing. John chapter 8. Now we realize in Jesus' day the church had become very, very imbalanced. In the name of the law of God, they had become exacting and critical and condemning. And I want us to look at these two contrasting storylines of supposed truth that was the church gone wrong. John chapter 8, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach. So it's a big crowd. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. That's not easy to do. But it was rigged, so it was doable. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman with the woman where she was in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, there are two places that phrase, go and sin no more, are used. They're both in the Gospel of John, John 5, 14, and right here in this narrative. There's something about this story that's exceptionally out of whack. You know, the Bible has something to say about premeditated murder as opposed to manslaughter, which is an accidental death of someone. And the Bible clarifies a different kind of punishment. What we see here is that a church set on the outward performance dynamics of compliance is willing to be twisted and turned to step not only on the woman, but to step on God himself, on Jesus. You can make the Bible say whatever you want the Bible to say as long as you leave out sufficient portions of the Bible while you're saying it. And if your mind and heart are bent around self and somehow wounded pride or selfish ambition is what's being stretched out of shape by this new young teacher, you can get the Bible to do for you what you need to do with the Bible. In this case, it was destroy the lady on the road to destroying Jesus. So I want everybody listening in any sermon, anywhere, at any time to know you need to come prayerfully, you need to pray that the presenter came prayerfully, and you need to think prayerfully about what the presenter said and test it like the Bereans to see if it's actually true. Because there's a lot of slick talking going on in the world right now, and some of it sounds close to right. And the devil's in the details. So it did sound kind of close to right that Moses said this. And by the way, there's no contesting in this narrative about whether or not the law had anything to say about this. The truth of the matter was, was that a church bent on condemnation and the puffing up of public figures and a structure of systems that didn't make you examine your heart, only your actions, had gotten in the way of the gospel, and it was standing in the way of Jesus. And in order to get Jesus out of the way, they're willing to set up a storyline. 
Now, the fact that there's only one of the two guilty parties there, I'm not sure how you commit adultery without two people, and only one party is there is probably a definite affirmation that this was structured for destruction. And Jesus understands, as the author of the law, that if you don't come with grace and truth, truth by itself is deadly, dangerous. As a matter of fact, there is no such thing as truth without grace to a sinful human being. The law without the provision of grace means death and condemnation. And when Jesus releases this woman at the end, he's not giving her a pass like what she did was okay. He's showing her the high price of grace because she sat there shivering and shaking, waiting for the stones. Jesus had already said in his first message, recorded in Matthew 5, don't think I came to change the law. I came to establish it, every jot and every tittle. But it's impossible, as he spoke, like he spoke with the woman at the well, to get it right unless you have the Spirit and the truth, because you can twist the truth into serving you. And that's exactly what we have. Now, flip over, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where our scripture reading came from, and let's look at another version of a twisted church with twisted leadership. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we find the most challenged church of all the New Testament. The book is full of challenges. And when it comes to looking at these challenges, Paul is unwilling to watch certain things or wait for certain things to work their way out. And in this case, there is an egregious or a terrible offense against moral living. Now, I want to make sure that we all understand how important morality is. And morality is not just in dealing with the sexual dynamics of man and woman, or as the law talks about sexual dynamics that are forbidden between members of the same sex, but there is a certain imperative to making sure that what's at the center of love and marriage and society is done right, is understood properly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, and someone has his father's wife, probably a stepmother. You have become, verse 2 says, a little spiritual diagnosis, arrogant. In what way, you might ask? In the name of grace, a false grace, a complete misunderstanding of grace, in a grace that our modern Protestant world is focused on, which is the perpetual forgive my sins justification dynamic, but grace isn't strong enough to deliver me from my sins. So I just need to stay on the perpetual rat cage, squirrel cage. Please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. And I don't want to minimize forgiveness for a second. We need it every day. We're living under the amazing banner of God's grace. But God intended to not only forgive the things that were enslaving us, but to break the chains that hold us. And this is where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves not so much in the age of the Puritans, which so many Adventists or others will make mention of, supposedly supremely legalistic, which is a little hard to judge because legalism is a sin of motivations. It's not so much a sin of standards. And yet, we find ourselves today in an age looking a whole lot more like Corinth and a whole lot less like Jesus in John chapter 8. You become arrogant. You have not mourned over what? Sin. 
so that the one who has done this deed should be removed from your midst. Now, you need to understand, church, discipline is not designed to be punishment. It is designed to be redemption. And sometimes there is a very difficult dynamic involved in it such that we would prefer to look the other way and act like it's not a big deal. But Paul, who has spent some time at Corinth but is not an established pastor in Corinth and is under great concern that this letter may break the bond that he has with this church, is still going to go ahead and do what Ezekiel says. If you see the destruction coming, The problem with sins of this nature is that they don't reveal their deadly dynamic in the beginning. It takes a while to see how it rots the soul, destroys the home, ruins the church. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit. He's not dead. He's alive. You read that phrase other places in Paul's writing. I've already judged them who have so committed this as though I were present. What's the problem? It's sin. The book of Leviticus talks about it. It's wrong. It's not just sort of wrong. It's deadly wrong to love and healthy human relationships. And the grace structure, supposedly, the affirmation theology around it, is deadly to the church. And Paul says, this will be the first of all the heavy hitting I'm going to do. Yes, in the first chapters, he'll talk about disunity and celebrity pastorisms, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. He'll drive a stake in the heart of all of these errors, and he's certainly not going to go easy on this because dysfunction is sin in the name of secular humanism. They don't have the law. The law is under yourself, and feelings matter more than facts put in place by the designer. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled... And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. I want you to understand what discipline is. Discipline is trying to concentrate a cause and effect understanding of sin. It's trying to take you from the innocency of how it appears to the pain of how it ends up in a shorter form. Children who are not disciplined, husbands who are not held accountable, women, wives who are not held accountable, pastors and leaders who are not held accountable. They are on a road to self-destruction. Accountability is a healthy factor of a relationship. A relationship shouldn't be about snooper trooper accountability all the time. I learned something about my, my mother a couple weekends ago that her dad would go out and search her car looking for cigarettes. Well, probably my mom was smoking. But it would have been better if there would have been some other way for her to deal, him, him to deal with her in that phase of her life as she was definitely a young woman at that point in time. Looking for evil will produce it. But it doesn't mean we can look the other way when evil stares us in the face. Your boasting, verse 6, is not good. What are they boasting about? They're boasting about the amazing grace of God, which should be boasted about. But God's grace is not amazing, and it's not grace at all when it's used to cover over, to cover up, or worse yet, support something that is soul-destroying and relationship-destroying. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. That metaphor, that symbol of leaven 
is the symbol for sin most often in the Bible, although leaven can be used to represent good things as well. But in this case, it's clearly a corrupting influence. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, verse 8, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, the last part of the epistle is this chapter, quite clear. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But he's going to clarify that. I did not mean all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers. Let's get them all in there, at least in principle some, or with the, adulter- the idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with your fellow church members when they're acting like this. Covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You should know the P.S., the postscript on this story, is that the church actually listens to what he says, and Paul says, look, he's repented. He's gotten the point. Bring him back in. Now, I wish church discipline worked like this more often. Unfortunately, in our modern age, we're so tolerant along with the world, which doesn't have the law of God and hates the law of God. By the way, the church is the new systemized colonizer, bigot, prejudiced group of people, especially as we watch our society transform itself in its humanist gospel. Listen, we were all made in the image of God. Yes, you've got a carnal heart. Do you think that those two things are not warring? The Bible says in Romans 1, even those who don't have the law, when they do what's right, are a law unto themselves. What I'm trying to tell you is, through the Holy Spirit, everybody has God talking to them. Some listen more than others. But made in the image of God, we were made to do good. Without religion, people are still trying to do good. The problem is, without the law to govern what love is, They're taking and creating a gospel of humanist tolerance, which is not love at all. And it's allowing kids to go through transition surgeries when they're still kids. We don't even let them drive a car yet. We don't let them enroll in the army yet. We don't even let smoke cigarettes yet. But they can make life-altering changes that somewhere down the road they may say, hmm, maybe I didn't know what I was doing. We're living in a strange period of time in which lawlessness is not without some good intention. The only problem is living by feeling, not by the Word of God, lends itself to be massaged, manipulated, and twisted into something it's not supposed to be. Now, having said that, there are some people who take the name of Christ who don't know what grace is, and they're not living under it. And they walk around, and some congregations go around quick to call out sin, like bringing the woman caught in adultery and throwing her down in front of everybody. What a spectacle. And somebody who has a bit of understanding about what sin really is and how life should really work has to step in and say, your spirit's so twisted and you're so cross-eyed spiritually, you can't see yourself, the forest for the trees. I'm going to have to write in the dust here something about you. And while I don't believe Jesus put names to the sins, I think he knew who was looking over his shoulder when he was writing. And as he's writing that Pharisee's sins, that Pharisee is looking. It was grace. It was an act of grace to the master of the sound waves to not create a divine megaphone and announce to the whole temple complex This guy's a fraud. That guy's a hypocrite. And they set this whole thing up. 
You see, with a true Christian, there's grace enough for everybody. The most egregiously sinning, like the Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul, and those who were sucked into it, seduced and trapped, like the woman caught in adultery. What it's important for us to see is that within two generations at most, because Paul only lived till about A.D. 67, I believe it is, or 70, there is a great change in the church to where in some places in the name of grace we're affirming sin and thinking we're honoring God. Now, in the first service, I, I used a metaphor that I thought was pretty good. We have two people or two types of people in the church. Some go around with uh, pain medicine and some go around with scalpels. And you know the pain medicine looks a little better than the scalpel. And you know if you have to have surgery, you do want the operator to understand what anesthesia is. All right? The truth of the matter is if you don't get this right as a church, you ruin people because they don't want that version of God. The truth of the matter is, if you get this wrong, you ruin people too because they get a version of God without having the power to be set free from their sins, and they go on singing the hymns and coming to church. All the while, the darkness is deepening inside because they never discovered a living God who with resurrection power can set people free. The church has the awesome task before it of showing the world how you handle de delicate and difficult situations because we're pursuing truth whether it cuts across our lives or someone else's life or society's lives. But if we don't get it right, there is a dastardly potential that we could be leveraged by the devil to do that which none of us would ever dream of doing. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Between the services, I had somebody send me a text. I don't always see the text. Sometimes I wait till late in the afternoon to even look at them. But I saw this one, and I thought to myself, I'm going to read it, sent by another pastor, at least he has been a pastor, kind of a lay pastor right now. It's a quote from Review and Herald, 1909, paragraph 7, September 9. We are engaged in an important and essential work, and we must carry on an aggressive warfare. We are to stand for Protestant principles. For the policies of the papacy will edge their way into every possible place to prescribe liberty of conscience. Every eye should now be single to the glory of God. Now, what caught my attention in this quote was this phrase, we are to stand for Protestant principles, here we go, for the policies of the papacy will edge their way into every possible place to proscribe. That means to take away to lawfully take away, at least in man's line of thinking, liberty of conscience. Now, let's bring a little bit of Adventist prophetic understanding out right here. For a long time, and let's bring a little current crisis of culture in right here. In the book Great Controversy, the author says this, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle. Final means there's others before it, right? It is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering. Okay, this was written a little while ago. So she must have been in some of her own battles. 
a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. So let's make sure we got the main point. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning, did anybody notice? The law of God. Now, let's combine the Review and Herald with the great controversy, and let's realize that the policies of the papacy will work themselves in wherever they can against liberty of conscience. And let's broaden our understanding of the last few years and our concern for the future if we could. What do I mean? Since about 1960-something, we have had a war on against the law of God. It was in the 1960s that people decided that marriage was no longer a necessary thing. Oh, there were people protesting for sure, and even in institutions of, of what we now call social media, we called it media back then, there were certain things that were never going to happen on a TV screen. We've come a long way, baby, a whole lot longer and farther away from the law of God than we ever imagined. And we found ourselves moving from a belief that the laws of morality that protect a society, a family, and a nation should be reinforced in its reading and its viewing, at least between certain hours. We've come so far that we ensconced in law the idea that male and female are not necessary for homemaking. But we've gone beyond that now to where you can throw people in jail for refusing gender transition surgeries for their children. Now, I'm trying to make a point to you that from Little House on the Prairie to whatever the latest fair is, we have seen a law on the Word of God that has not been good, and unless your parents divorce over an affair or some kind of moral failure, it hasn't terribly troubled us too very much. But there's been a law on against the Word of God that has been the center of the cultural rot of this nation. And that's why when people in conservative countries worshiping other gods or the same God with other names, when they see what we pump out of our Christian society to corrupt their children and destroy their homes, they consider us to be quite problematic on the cultural scene of the world. That war has been on. Now, as we watch the pendulum swing and the imbalance of American culture weeble and wobble, getting ready to fall down, we see a response developing in conservative Protestant Christianity that's getting ready to pounce on the absolute undeniable and unlivable dysfunction that has come with lawlessness. And so I can hold in my hands a book that is old but is turning out to be not too far away from living present truth called American Theocracy. And I can assure you that we are on our way to recapturing the fabric of society by getting back to God. It's coming soon, sooner than you might think. Now, I want to make a point when we are full of grace and truth, we allow the law of God to define the parameters of love, but it cannot give us the spirit of love. 
But if you put the law out of the picture, all the spirit in the world cannot make up for this shapeless identity that leads to every man doing what's right in their own eyes and destroying people and families and societies on the way. Now I'm going to get just a little bit more pointed. We just went through an experience with COVID where the longer we get away from mandating and compulsion, the more the world seems to be willing to talk about what might have been wrong in those chapters. But I want to combine that statement out of Review and Herald with the law on the Word of God from what we'll call the progressive side of life that considers Christianity bigotry. Because corporately we all got kind of used to doing what was right in our own eyes, the greater good and a raw version of democracy, which is whoever can shout the loudest on social media, becomes the new normative right. The Republican dynamic of protecting minorities was thrown under the bus. And I want to know why. And I want to challenge those who have an interest in this subject, especially our Religious Liberty Department, to say, can we not see that the war on the law comes from both sides of the, of the aisle? Can we not see the war on the law that's been on and that the policies of the papacy used in the coercion of conscience during an era of experimentation was a little window, maybe a big window, on a lamb-like beast starting to sound and look like a dragon? I want us to think about this because in the name of feeling good, affirmation theology, we could call it, where there is no prophet to say, this is a problem, and there is no culture to say, this is a problem. What we're looking at is a failure of the church absolutely lock, stock, and barrel. Because politicians are always trying to figure out where the wind's blowing to do what's right. And business is interested in money. And government needs to be maintained by some form of power. When we come to this storyline, we find a, law on the wor- uh, a war on the law of God in society that didn't terribly bother us too terribly much, even at the expense of 50 or 60 million unborn babies sacrificed in the womb. And there are some people's thinking, it is without any reference point to Scripture, which makes regard for life, even our law makes regard for life. To where if you're driving drunk and you kill a woman who's pregnant, you're guilty of two homicides. But if the life is taken by the mother, It's just choice. There's been a war on against the law of God, against righteousness, and we've gotten used to it to where some people are actually terribly grieved to think that some liberties might have been given illicitly and never should have been taken. Of course, this is true with the woman caught in adultery, and it's true with the man in 1 Corinthians 5, but it's true societally as we've doled out permissions that God's Word never gave permission for. Yes, we need to be afraid of those Sunday laws that are coming because they're going to tell us how we have to worship, when we have to worship, where we can be and can't be. But what about those laws where, where there is oppression of liberty of conscience in the name of hedonism, in the name of the indulgence of the flesh, societally ensconced, put into the entertainment? We even watch it vicariously. In other words, we watch it and see it, and it's lived out in our minds even though we're not living it out in life violence and immorality. It ought not to be in our homes and it ought not to be on our phones, so it ought not and would not be in our heads. But what has happened to us that where we can't talk about this? 
I have begged, if one would care to describe my request, that we actually take some time as a denomination and talk about what just happened. Some have told me nobody's mind is ever going to change. That's not true. And it defies the principles of Matthew 18 and Leviticus 19 that suggest that we keep getting together and talking. It defies the Protestant principles that truth reigns supreme, not power and not position. And it enhances and holds up the Protestant principle that guilt is guilt. It's important that we do not choose verbiage and alignment with a secular humanist gospel of tolerance that actually traps people in a wrong understanding in the name of God. Because God is a liberator. And as we'll see when we sing our closing song, we are cleansed in record and we are cleansed within. Our identity is in Christ. It's not in the old lifestyle. So if you're an alcoholic, you're not an alcoholic forever. While you have to recognize your tendency, you are a new creature in Christ. And it doesn't matter what name and what sin you attach to it. While you may always struggle with wanting that cigarette or that shot glass, your identity is in who you're becoming, not who you were. And this is a great challenge to Christianity. And we have some people running around who are supposedly better at making people feel good, even when making them feel good might be eternal death. And I want to make sure we understand one other thing. There is a Holy Spirit. If you read John 16, he fulfills at least three, three, three roles. He comes to convict the world of sin. We're all under sin. The good news is he doesn't stop there. He shows us and convicts us of righteousness in the life of Christ and of vindication in judgment. But if we never let the Word of God define what sin is, and if we never talk about it, it might be that we have the scalpels and the pain pills running around in different churches all thinking they've got it right. The only way to test your spirit is to talk with someone who doesn't agree with you. And when you do that, you'll find out whether or not you're on the right side or on the wrong side. This subject matter matters. You can't get out of the book of Genesis without realizing that moral issues are the downfall of societies and worlds. If you read in the first 10, 11 chapters of the Bible, you find out God had to start the whole thing over again because 900 years of living was a time to perfect sin and to destroy souls. You go a little beyond that and you're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham's pleading. These are all about morale, or I should say morality. You go a little bit farther than that and you're dealing with Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, who's violated by Hamor, the Shechemite. You go a little bit farther than that, you're dealing with Joseph, Potter's wife. You go a little farther than that, you're dealing with Judah and his daughter-in-law prostitute, Tamar. And you go a little farther than that, and you're dealing with Reuben and his dad's handmaid. You know what they all have in common? If you don't, you can go study it this afternoon, but I want to tell you, this issue of human sexuality is a big deal. And if we think at the very end that the devil's not going to come at both sides for the ultimate kill, we need to think again. The five decades of attack on the law of God are coming to an end. And when they come to an end, this dynamic of morality, all these issues come back to the Garden of Eden, every single one. And when he's done pushing from one side, he's going to push for another to pounce and destroy. I want to assure you that it would be the greatest of all sins if somehow 
the Seventh-day Adventist church should find itself at the very end aiding the overthrow of God's law by an imbalance that ends up in affirmation theology when in reality we're called to give the everlasting gospel. Now that word in Revelation 14 is eternal gospel. And I just want to remind you of something. The gospel cannot save you. I mean, the law cannot save you. The gospel is the interposition of God between the demands of the law and the need of the sinner. But I want to tell you, before there was any sin, if that gospel, which is eternal, is to be given, you know what it says? It says that before Eve took from the fruit of the tree and ate, she was living under the gospel. And you know what the gospel was? God said it. I believe it. And that settles it for me. And you know what? She didn't know about some things. And it was a gospel innocence. But when that law was violated, and I want to remind you, friends, it was violated over a command of God. But if you want to look at the command and its supposed range on the spectrum of good and bad, eating from the tree would, by modern standards, look like it's down here in the lower zone of offensiveness. But now we're at a place where we're willing to defy the dynamics of created dichotomy, which is male and female. We are approaching the end. And wouldn't it be sad if at the very end, in the name of supposed love, which is not a love balanced by spirit and truth, we should be affirming that which destroys love, destroys happiness, destroys homes, destroys the very fabric of society and civility as licentiousness is unleashed. That war has been on. It's coming to an end. And somewhere not far down the road, we're going to see a new war that just goes straight for the juggler of the fourth commandment, not the fifth and not the seventh. And certainly at the very heart of the most unique law that came out of creation, the Sabbath. For all the six days of working, the epitome of happiness was a connection with the Creator. When Jesus went to the cross, it was because the law could not be changed. When you read the Bible laws about morality, you have to be already pre-programmed to read them to mean the opposite of what they mean because reading them in their simplicity, like out of Leviticus 18, you can't get away from the clear understanding. But there are places and there are people, some of who take the name of the three Advents, the three Advent messengers, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, some who are employed, who are actually teaching that the simplest statements of Scripture don't mean what the simplest statements of Scripture say. It's a form of affirmation theology, but it can be, a, it can be, it can be subscribed to legitimacy nowhere in the Bible. Even the man caught, no, even the man 38 years laying at the pool of Bethesda, take up your bed and walk. He's there because of sexual sin if the desire of ages is accurate. And after he's gone around in his liberation carrying his mat and getting in trouble, he comes back and talks to Jesus 
And Jesus tells him the same thing he told the woman. Go and sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, I'm appealing to my church, this village church, to anyone who listens, and to my larger church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, that we be the most biblically defined Christians on the topic of grace, love, and truth. Because the truth without grace is a butcher knife. And grace without truth is a set of blinders. And you can't get to the kingdom, especially with the joy of heaven in you, without understanding how to bring in spirit and truth the law of God and a graciousness of spirit and relationship together. When Jesus died on the cross, what he said in Matthew 5, he was proving that not one jot or one tittle, you couldn't change the law. You can't change this, the sacred history of the book of Genesis. And for that reason, Jesus reaches out and he takes the two pillars like Samson in the temple of Dagon, and in the name of saving you and me, he pulls the house down on himself. My sins are in him so that his life can be in me. And he changes the way all of us look at judgment because he not only paid the penalty, but he set me free. And while some generational sins which we are watching, they are getting more exaggerated as time goes by whether it's alcohol or something else, those generational sins are catching up from it with us. It's only been in the last two or three generations that we have such generational sinning out in the open and encouraged. And it's catching up with us. But it still doesn't change the fact that whatever you received in tendency from your forefathers is not the perpetual tyranny of your soul. You can be free in Christ. Someone once preached from this pulpit and touched on the subject matter of pornography. On the way out of church, one of the wives said to the husband, so how goes it with you? The husband was honest. Pretty heavy day for the wife. But the man is being or has been, I don't know, but I trust it's both because you need an ongoing freedom from some things because they chase you your whole life. The man has been and is continuing to be set free. For anybody here today who's struggling with virtual immorality, I'm inviting you to the living Christ and to some active law of relationship decisions. And if somebody needs to look at your phone or your device whenever they want to, because you're too tethered to this sexual addiction, which is a besetting sin, give them permission. If you need to unravel yourself and go back to using a flip phone, which isn't a foolproof way of doing it, Deliver yourself, because I'm going to tell you something. The love that Jesus poured out on Calvary is to be experienced, known, and enjoyed. Love and lust run almost parallel to each other, but lust is off.
It sells itself as love up front. But it shows up as a monster somewhere down the road without loyalty and fidelity and faithfulness and self-control. And this morning, I'm here to tell you, you cannot affirm something that the law of God disavows. Even in the name of trying to be nice. And while we don't need to run it out trying to call the body of Christ, cut things out of it, we do need to be faithful to our relationships, pastor, pastoral, teacher, marital, parental. We need to be faithful to those faithful to the relationship, the one who is faithful enough to go all the way to Calvary for us. If you got to set up a firewall, the scripture says you flee sexual immorality, just like Joseph. You don't stand there and fight and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. All the while, the beauty and the pressure builds around you. No. In the name of God and the story of divine deliverance, you declare yourself to be on the side of Jesus and you set some distance between you and the enemy and you let Jesus direct everything that's going on inside. You can't watch this garbage or read this garbage and be free. It doesn't work. The pig's not supposed to go back to the vomit, to the wallow. We were destined to be children of the king and nobody can be affirmed in doing wrong without blood being on the hands of the affirmer. At the same time, nobody can redeem the lost without understanding what it's like to feel stuck in the pig pen. We need the most gracious, grace-oriented people who can talk about things and know how to be kind. So if someone's brought caught in the act of adultery, we can help them get free from what got them there. This is the call of the church. The world's not coming to a hard-hearted group, and the world can't be redeemed by a lawless group. We're going to be redeemed in the power of a loving, gracious, truth-committed God and truth-committed church. So I'm appealing to you. If you're the man or the woman of Ezekiel 33, you've got to be the man or the woman of Ezekiel 33 who sees that destruction's on its way, and you've got to speak up. And if you're supposed to be the one who shelters the broken from their own record and their embarrassment, then be sure to do that too. They're both grace. It's not easy. The only thing that makes it work is love. It's risky, it's messy, and it's the way things work. I took Jesus all the way to the cross so you and I can face the future unafraid and live today with happiness. I'm inviting you today to make the decision to walk in the narrow way with Jesus and stay out of the 10 miles of ditch on this side and the 10 miles of ditch on that side and walk the narrow way with Christ, your hand in his, his voice in your head and in your ear, and know that marvelous grace. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn. Lord, we praise your name for the pardon and the cleansing within. And I'm praying, Lord, help us to recognize where the broken cisterns are where the traps of this world are so that we don't live in this perpetual cycle of guilt and shame, but that we actually are finding strength in our innermost persons for victory. I'm praying, Lord, for our church that we could have the honest dialogues that allow us to see the policies of coercion before there's a religious resurgence, but instead a government and societal one in the name of corporate good. I'm praying, Lord, that you would Give us the ability to love people 
with all types of generational sins and strengthening tendencies, but to do it in such a way to where they clearly understand that identification by that past is a tether to the sin. And I'm praying now, Lord, that you would enable us as a church to practice what we preach, to be full of grace and truth. And as Jesus said to the woman at the well, those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. It was out of whack in the church of the Jews. We saw how it got out of whack in the church at Corinth. It appears, Lord, that it needs to be recalibrated again. Help us, Lord, to go all the way through the end recognizing the beauty of grace and truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God be with you. Please be seated.